This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation uh, webinar. We're going to talk about the budget. We're going to do that one because we haven't got any imagination and there is a budget next week and it's important we talk about it in advance. Secondly, because it's quite nice because it might be a calm budget. There's not going to be any immediate fiscal crisis that needs to be uncrisised. There's uh, not a pandemic going on where we've got to admit to huge increases in borrowing to get us through uh, traumatic side and it's almost been like a normal budget in the olden days where a chancellor has kind of set out some issues he's concerned about economic inactivity uh, levels of investment and then has then over a period of months considered the policy options that might make a plausible difference to that over a long period of time so in lots of ways it's a bit like a normal old-fashioned budget, which is why the papers this weekend didn't have loads and loads and loads of speculation about it and lots of excitement. The only slight weird thing is obviously that for the public, it's not particularly normal economic times. They're still paying very large energy bills. Lots of businesses are very worried. You're seeing insolvencies um, tick up. So you're slightly maybe a Westminster versus real-world disconnect, where it feels more normal in Whitehall and Westminster and doesn't feel that normal or indeed nice for most people around the country. So the question is where, given those kind of impacts and trends, is this all gonna come out over the course of the next uh, week and a bit? So that's what we're going to discuss today. Um, I'm Torsten Bell, I'm the Chief Exec of the Foundation. Um, you're then gonna hear from a great panel to take you through uh, what we think might or might not happen next week. So first of all, you're gonna hear from Cara Pajiti, who is the Senior Economist at the Resolution Foundation. She's gonna give you a summary of a report we published this morning running through what the forecasts and indeed the policy options are for next week's budget. Then you're going to hear from Kate Bell who is the Assistant General Secretary at the TUC, uh, newly-ish promoted um, uh, into that role but having been around these issues for a very long time indeed. And then you're going to hear Chris, from Chris Giles, Economics Editor for the Financial Times who's been telling you all what was going to be in budgets for even longer than Kate has been doing it. So he can do that uh, again today. And as always, you can ask questions. Go on to Slido and it's hashtag budget preview. Or if you're in the room, you can put your hands up and you'll get a microphone and you can ask your question. So that is the plan. What is the budget going to be all about next week? Let's find out. Cara, over to you. Great. So good morning, everyone. Um, I'd like to start by thanking the other 11 of my colleagues at RF who also worked on this budget preview. And you can, you can see it in full on our website. So as Torsten said, in many respects, this feels like a much more normal budget than we've seen in a while. The date's been announced, we've got an OBR forecast in the works, um, and we've had the same Chancellor for nearly five months now, which feels like an improvement. Um, but that isn't to say that there aren't some big judgments for both the OBR and the Chancellor next week, and challenging circumstances still to make them in. So I'm going to take you through, firstly, um, three, key ex um, three key forecasting decisions the OBR will be making as we look at their forecast next week. Um, looking at firstly, will people continue to save or run down their savings in the face of rising prices? How far the stronger tax receipts we've seen um, over the past few months are likely to continue into future years of the forecast? And a more long-term decision on the size of the labour market looking towards, towards the end of their forecast. Secondly, based on the outcome of these decisions, uh, the Chancellor has key policy decisions to make on three areas relating to the ongoing cost of living crisis, 
public sector pay, as well as his longer-term stated aims of boosting growth. So turning firstly to the forecasts and some, some rare good news, but some also some longer-term challenges. So starting with that near-term good news, we've seen some, some more positive views than expected back in November on energy prices, as well as on GDP. So wholesale energy prices on that left panel, you can see, have fallen by, by around 80% since August, albeit still around three times higher than their 2015 to 2020 average in that light blue line across the bottom of that chart. And looking to the right panel of that chart, in November, the OBR forecast GDP to fall by around 1.3% this year. But following those really significant falls in energy prices, we think it might be more like the 0.5% the you can see um, the Bank of England forecast comes out at in that light blue dot towards the right, of that, um, right panel of that chart. That would still mean that the UK experiences a technical recession, but a much less severe one, and in fact the shallowest recession since the 1950s. So some really, really good, generally, genuinely good economic news in the near term. But despite that good news on the economy, for a lot of people in the UK it might not feel like good news. Typical incomes are still projected to fall by 2% this year, that's about £700, and a further 4% or £1,100 in 2023-24. So against that backdrop of both the economy and how it feels for, for general households, comes to the first of the OPR's key forecast judgments and how this will affect savings behaviours. So as you can see in this red dotted line, the Bank of England has been forecasting a rise in the savings ratio from Q2 2022 onwards, in quite significant contrast to the OPR, who assumed saving would fall as people dug into their savings in the face of rising prices. And that's a huge difference in household spending between that, that green and that dotted red line. Um, nearly £40 billion pounds worth in 2023. Um, so where do we think the OBR might end up on this? So, so far, outturn data doesn't really support the idea of big falls in the savings ratio. We've seen the saving ratio actually increased in Q Q3, and household deposits have continued to rise at average rates in Q4. So we may see a shift to something slightly closer to the bank's forecast um, here, although obviously still a judgment to be made by the OBR. Um, so moving on to the more familiar territory, perhaps, of bad news. While we've had some good short-term economic news, the spectre of lower growth is still on the horizon, particularly when we look at labour market participation and inactivity. We've seen rising ill health and disability, both in the labour market, where we've seen 350,000 more people reporting they're economically inactive as a result of long-term sickness. And we've also seen this in the benefit system, with rising disability benefit claims over the past two years. So this brings us to the OBR's second key judgment. Faced with these trends of rising inactivity and sickness and disability, should they forecast a smaller workforce over the medium term? So as you can see on this chart, again, the Bank of England has been much more pessimistic on this in recent forecasts, assuming really significant falls in the participation rate in that light blue line there. Um, and the OBR's November forecast, by contrast, was much more of a flatlining in participation over the medium term. While the latest outturn data hasn't been significantly lower, you can see it's been, had a bit of a kind of whiplash in the past, past few months. Um, the OBR might look at that data on sickness and disability and still decide to downgrade their forecast. Our assumption here, that red dotted line that fold, um, folds into our projections later on in the presentation, um, goes for an approach between the bank and the OBR. So assuming we reach the level of the participation the Bank of England um, have in their forecasts, but much later on in the forecast, so in 2028. 
And this is likely to be a really key judgment, particularly given the chance those fiscal targets um, apply in the final year of the forecast. So any big downgrades to the economic forecast in that year would be likely to sort of constrain his ability to spend more than this kind of near-term news that I was talking about earlier. So taking that near-term good news and potentially slightly weaker participation forecast together, offset a little bit by new ONS population projections, on the economic side of things, our update has a largely similar medium-term GDP forecast in November, so really no big surprises here. Um, and unless the OBR downgrades both its participation and its productivity assumptions, forecasts will remain still more optimistic than the Bank of England and in line with other external forecasters. So turning to the fiscal side, again we've got some kind of near-term good news. So borrowing is currently an outturn um, around 30 billion lower than forecast for the year. Um, about a third of this comes through lower spending, so that's the result of much lower spending on energy support schemes, offset slightly by that light green bar, which is higher spending by departments on goods and services as prices have risen. Um, but I think perhaps more important, okay, given a lot of that's likely to be temporary because it's a, a result of kind of inflation and energy support, more important is that, that lower spending on receipts, that £10 billion, kind of another third of that chunk, which is um, much stronger tax receipts, particularly from national insurance contributions and self-assessment, um, suggesting a kind of genuinely higher tax richness in the economy than forecast. So that brings us to our third and final key judgment for the OBR. Will those stronger tax receipts last further into the forecast? So in previous forecasts where we've seen stronger tax receipts and outturn, the OBR has tended to assume some of that strength persists into later years of the forecast. How far he assumes that they assume that, um, they assume that this forecast is again going to be really important for the fiscal position in these all-important final years of the forecast where the fiscal rule is targeting. Um, and this chart illustrates the fiscal effects of the economic assumptions I went through earlier, um, including a revised GDP path and participation rate. And the blue bars show our, our, um, our um, judgment on, on assuming some of those tax receipts persist further into the forecast. Um, as well as looking at changes in debt interest and energy support receipts and spending based on kind of market movements since the forecast. So taken together, it's a relatively small change from the November forecast um, in the context of the really large change in the forecast we've seen in previous, um, previous budgets, which leaves us about 10 billion lower um, borrowing in the final year of the forecast than the November, the November OBR um, picture. So the overall picture on the public finances is again one of good news in the near term, but smaller and more uncertain movements over the medium term, which would leave the chance, I think, with around £15 billion of headroom against this fiscal rule to have underlying public sector debt falling by 2027-28. And that would be a small improvement on the £9 billion of headroom he was forecast to have back in November, but that's against a much bigger picture of higher borrowing and debt than forecast this time last year. So these are small improvements on what was already a very high borrowing kind of picture, um, and still a very small amount of headroom by historical standards and in comparison to the OBR's five-year forecasting error. So it's against this context of near-term good news and more uncertain news for the medium term that the Chancellor have to make some big decisions on three key areas of policy. So the first of these relates to ongoing support, given we're still very much in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis. So perhaps the most obvious decision here relates to the energy price guarantee. Um, we know that current policy will see a rise in the EPG to £3,000 from April before lower gas prices filter through to the off-gen price cap from July, bringing energy bills back down. 
This is messy politically, it's messy macroeconomically and quite painful for consumers, particularly if you're on a prepayment meter. So it's likely this rise in the EPG we think will be scrapped. It also feels like it's a decision that may already have been taken according to news reports. Um, but we'll see, we'll see if that appears in the budget. Um, secondly, the chance someone to decide how to go ahead with planned rises in fuel duty. So the temporary 5p cut we've had in fuel duty is set to expire and that plus the default which is operating in line with RPI would add about 12p per litre to petrol prices. Um, so we think given kind of given previously we've seen repeated OBR forecasts based on government policies of a fuel duty rise that, that never materialises. Um, history tells us an ongoing fuel, fuel duty freeze is, is, is likely. Um, Cancelling both these these, this 5p rise and then the RPI operating would cost around £5 billion um, or £3 billion if only the RPI rise is scrapped. Um, in, per year, yeah, yeah. Annual. annual. Forever, yeah, exactly. for the rest of our limited lives, yeah. £5 billion. Precisely. Right, this is not a heckling kind of room. <laughs> <laughs> That's on, great. Enthusiasm for questions later. We're coming back to questions. <laughs> um, so moving on to thorny issue on public sector pay, um, we've seen really significant public sector pay pressure reflecting larger real falls in public sector pay than private sector pay compared to pre-pandemic, um, with vacancies in the sector unsurprisingly on the rise and of course strikes a really significant feature of the past few months. Um, so how could the Chancellor deal with this? Um, departments have said a 3.5% pay rise next year is affordable within current spending plans. Going further with a 5.5% rise and starting to close some of that public-private pay gap would cost another £5 billion. Um, so big decisions to be made there. And on to our last policy area, and probably the one the Chancellor really wants to be talking about, um, is on his stated aims of boosting growth. So thinking about one way of boosting growth, and something that's been, I think, in the news of the weekend, um, comes through incentivising private inv investment and, and looking at corporation tax. Um, you might remember the Tuarteng Trust Growth Plan um, had this falling to 19%, um, but this was reversed back to the planned rise we see here to 25% from April, as shown in the blue line on this chart. Um, cutting that headline corporation tax back down to 19% is really expensive. That's about 12 to 16 billion pound cost. Um, so. An alternative we think the Chancellor might also consider is instead looking at investment allowances for companies, so in particular the full expensing of investment, so allowing companies to offset all of their investment costs against profits the year they're incurred, and so reducing their corporation tax bill um, would cost more like 11 billion with some offsetting fiscal benefits in future years, and what's also more likely to have a, a kind of larger effect on increasing investment and so growth over the medium term albeit at the cost of not having that, um, that sort of headline CT rate policy, which I think some kind of uh, foreign audiences might also um, be attracted by. So a decision to be made there. Um, and another policy avenue for, for boosting growth is to return to those trends in labour market participation that I mentioned earlier. So this chart illustrates probably the most promising avenues for the Chancellor in reducing inactivity. Um, so as you can see from the red bars here, the UK has had some previous success. Um, this is our um, changes in labour force participation between 1999 and 2019. So you can see we've had some, some success in boosting participation for women, um, generally aged 25 to 34, and for both men and women aged 55 to 64. 
and progress has also been made in narrowing the disability employment gap. So an agenda focusing on, on women and older or disabled workers is likely to be most effective rather than trying to incentivise people that stay retired during COVID um, and are generally sort of higher income from professional backgrounds to come back into labour force. Focusing on these groups who have had more success previously is likely to be more effective. And here the Chancellor will likely be considering options such as discouraging early retirement by increasing the age at which tax relief private pensions can be accessed, um, encouraging parents into work by saying introducing a, a work allowance and universal credit for second earners that would cost about £2.1 billion. Or alternatively, the Chancellor could extend free childcare to one to two-year-olds that cost more like three to six billion pounds. Um, and finally, supporting those with ill health um, into the workforce by stopping people from having an extra work capability assessment if they enter work, or, or taking the more radical route of scrapping that altogether is another avenue he might, might be considering. Um, it's worth saying for both policies in this boosting growth category, um, these decisions will be trickier for the Chancellor given they have relatively high upfront costs, they're not small, they're not inexpensive. And while he might be optimistic, they'll pay for themselves in the long run through higher growth. Um, the OPR is historically a lot more cautious into actually factoring those effects into the forecast, so they will still look expensive over the medium term. So in conclusion, there is finally some good news for the Chancellor in the short term. Um, next year is still unlikely to feel like good news for households. And looking ahead, the low growth and elevated debt big picture hasn't changed hugely and we're talking about small improvements on still a very kind of high borrowing or a fiscally challenging picture. Um, there's some relatively straightforward decisions to make relating to energy price guarantee and fuel duty and the cost of living pressures. Um, but there's still some very difficult choices to be made um, on how to boost longer term growth and those are a lot more challenging fiscally as well as economically. Thanks very much. Great, thanks Cara. Very good. Thank you very much. Well, lots to chew through there. So thank you for your questions covering those uh, forecasts and those policy areas. Uh, Kate, are the strikes going to be all over? <laughs> that is not the first thing I was going to start with. <laughs> um, and I guess what I wanted to say was I was really struck when I was doing a bit of reading before this event. And I thought Cara's slides were fantastic and really interesting, but kind of reflect this. What I was struck with is one of the kind of weird things that happens when we talk about budgets is we start with the fiscal envelope and then start saying, what problems should we use that to address? Whereas in any normal planning process, you would say, what are the long term problems the country is facing and how can we best deploy our resources to address those? So I wanted to talk about a little bit about how thinking about some of those problems might change how we approach the budget and what kind of choices that would open up for us. And I think that kind of thinking also explains the other thing I was really struck with when reading about this, which is the kind of striking lack of ambition from the government. We seem to have kind of given up on getting better as a country. And I think that kind of really came through and I wanted to think about how we could address a little bit that. So when we think about those problems, and here I will talk about strikes, of course we have the crisis in our public services. Um, you might have seen the Institute for Government's tracker or performance track of public services. It describes us as having the worst NHS crisis in a generation. Um, we've got the long-term problems in social care, which we have talked about many, many times, and no government has actually really got a grip of and solved. And of course, we have problems in education, the hangover from the pandemic, but long-term problems of recruitment and retention too. 
And of course, the crisis in our public services is in part a crisis of recruitment and retention. And you saw the public sector pay figures that Cara just showed us. We've got one in three public sector workers thinking of quitting. And I think when you look at their workload pressures, when you look at their reward, it's not surprising that so many have been taking industrial action. We have got a bit of progress. Government has finally, after many months, said that they will talk about pay in the 22-23 round as well as next year. That is what those public servants have been asking them to do. But I think we need to think about this not just, you know, when we think about kind of growth prospects as well, we need to think about our public services as lying behind that increase in inactivity. You know, we know that health problems are part of that inactivity. And of course, if you're waiting much longer to get treatment, that is part of the issue. But I also think we need to think about it as, do people want to live in the UK? Do people want to invest in the UK? And increasingly, those problems with public services, I think, are behind some of the reasons why, you know, you've heard the CBI, I think, describing the UK as uninvestable. So I think if we were thinking about solving those problems, solving the problems for the country, we shouldn't just see this as making a short-term problem go away when we think about strikes. We should think about that as part of our long-term strategy. I also think there's kind of a feeling that the government has given up on the private sector as well as giving up on the public sector. Um, I think the ambitions the government has set out are strikingly unambitious. They are basically, let's hope we follow the forecasts and hope the forecasts don't get worse, appear to be what Rishi Sunak's five pledges seem to be. And that's why we're in the, long, you know, in the middle of the longest pay squeeze for 200 years, the deepest pay squeeze. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of analysis of where is the growth that would actually drive up living standards or any real analysis of why is our economy not producing that. Now, of course, the Resolution Foundation have got a huge project on that right now. There is a plan. Very honest. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, from the TUC, we do look at, you know, some of what President Biden has been saying in the States and saying, you know, we've got an economy that rewards wealth, not work right now. What could we do to start changing that? Our kind of proof points for that are, you know, huge rise in wealth while living standards have been flatlining. Um, looking at the kind of financial sector, we had dividends rising three times faster than wages over the last decade. But again, once you start thinking like that, it does open up more choices. So you saw the kind of corporation tax, those big cuts did not lead to an increase in growth. But what would it look like if we were to tax wealth more heavily as a signal not only of where we could get resources from, but of the kind of economy we want to have? And that would, you know, if we were to equalise capital gains tax with income tax, for example, that would help us solve some of our public sector problems at the same time as giving a signal about the type of economy we want. Linked, of course, to that lack of ambition is the kind of wider living standards disaster. And again, you know, Cara's given you some of the figures. We know about the terrible real income figures for families. But I think it's not just wages. We have social security payments, which are worth £40 a month less in real terms they were, than they were in 2010. And that's even after the uprating this year. Rather than any long-term analysis of how we might fix that, we've had a series of short-time fixes. You know, we welcome those cost of living payments, but they are short-term. They are not a long-term strategy for growth. We also, partly behind that living standards disaster, have our energy efficiency crisis. That is a huge problem which has been identified time and time again in terms of, you know, what's going wrong with the UK? Our homes are really, really energy efficient. We've just had a windfall, so to speak, in terms of lower expected energy prices. What if we were to use that to actually invest in tackling those problems? 
So that's just three areas, I think, where if we started by thinking about what are the problems we're trying to solve rather than what is the fiscal arithmetic that we face, we might open up not only more ambition, but some different solutions and change the way we thought about this. And I think, you know, our analysis would be we've spent the last decade since austerity focused on the fiscal arithmetic. You've seen where it's left us and we really do need a new approach. You would like a more exciting budget, <laughs> focusing on the missions for the country. Very good. There, thank you very much, Kate. find out if you get it. Chris. <laughs> uh, thank you very much Dawson and I really appreciate the work that uh, Cara and all your team have done uh, and I wouldn't I, I think it's, it's pretty much in the right place so I'm not going to talk about whether forecasts precisely are going to turn out uh, and I also I take Kate's challenge very seriously I think but I'm going to be really boring for a second and say in economics you want to maximize or optimise subject to constraints. So both sides are important, both the constraints and the optimization. And the constraints have got a lot worse. So if we stand back and say, what's happened to the constraints facing the UK? Uh, in three th areas, they've got massively more difficult for this government or any other government we might have in the next couple of years. First of all, the interest cost of our existing public uh, debt has gone up hugely. If we, our public debt is mm -hmm. roughly 2,000 billion pounds and so each 1% it goes up is 20 billion pounds per year extra. It's gone up about 3%. These are all terribly rough figures but it, but our, our public finances, particularly when the Bank of England owns a lot of that debt and pays interest on a day-to-day on -day basis is hugely sensitive and so that is something the nation is dealing with. Secondly, we're still dealing with the aftermath of COVID, particularly as Cara uh, suggested and Kate suggested that we know the participation problem is really serious and it's a UK problem, uh, particularly a UK problem, although we should remember that our participation rates are quite high internationally. So when other countries are rising and ours are falling, we're actually converging a bit. So uh, we shouldn't only just uh, bash ourselves and say it's a disaster but it's a it's a problem that it's not something we expected to be dealing with and so that makes life harder and thirdly you can't you can't do an economic talk without saying that brexit is causing problems and it definitively is and when we talk a lot about corporate investment and business investment and we say what sort of corporate tax structure would we want we've had a, a gazillion corporate tax structures uh, over the past 10 years and when did business investment stop? Well, it stopped in 2016 and it didn't start up since. And so I would say that don't get too hung up about corporate tax when you're thinking about investment. Make Britain a better place to invest. And that's where, what's going to happen more. So we have to accept those three things are difficult for the country and that we don't have a huge amount of money. The Chancellor, I'm sure, was hoping for more leeway in the budget than as Cara suggested, not very much in the medium term. Why is that? Why has the leeway sort of disappeared since what was expected in November? Well, the interest payment has gone wrong, not wrong, it's gone, gone against us again this month. This is a global thing, not a UK thing. In the autumn, it was a UK thing, not a global thing. And in fact, it's quite hard to know why in February the uh, interest rate or the borrowing cost on UK government debt rose as much as it did but it did, and that's going to make the forecast quite a lot worse. 
of the 30 billion um, good news we have had on the public finances, I think Cara is exactly right. About 10 might well pass through and the rest won't because it's essentially on spending. We don't really understand why that's been so good. And all the signs are that the OBR will say that there's some good news in the short term and in the medium term all these things come out in the wash in some way, especially after you've given some money uh, essentially to fuel duty, which you can debate whether it's a good thing. It's not. It's a really stupid thing to do, by the way. Um, but, but, but we are going, almost certainly going to give away any of the good news on that. And then in the short term, there are sort of one-off payments, like the energy price guarantee, absolutely going to happen, 2500 and there'll be a little bit more money for defence, we think, in the short term, essentially to buy more ammunition um, so that we can replenish our stocks, having given quite a lot of it to Ukraine. These are all perfectly sensible things. But in the medium term, I've got to say, I do think the OBR, um, where it's likely to come out, as in not much change, is a bit odd because, you know, energy prices have come down, forward energy prices, not just, uh, not just spot energy prices, wholesale gas prices have come down. They're less than half of the November forecast now. And in November, the OBR said that the level of growth, not growth, the level of output in the economy in five years' time would be 1.7% uh, lower because of a persistent effect from energy. And it's a terms of trade shock. We are just poorer as a nation uh, because we're having to pay more for an essential product. Well, that is going to improve. And we're not hearing anything about a persistent and permanent upgrade in our economy. And I think the, what the OBI is likely to do is that is going to be there and then they're going to offset that a bit because their potential growth rate was a little bit too mm. toppy. And then it's all going to be a bit messy uh, Wednesday week and it's all going to come out in the wash, uh, unfortunately. Um, but it does come to me one final point I wanted to make. So I think that think that we, that is where we're going to end up. Um, but because we've got good news in the short term, debt across the whole forecast is going to be lower than I would have thought than it was in November. And that might make you think you had actually a little bit more leeway to do some of the things that Kate and Cara were talking about, but it won't because we have a monumentally stupid fiscal rule at the moment. And it's a fiscal rule which says that debt has to be falling in the fifth year of the forecast. And what that means a government wants to do, if it wants to have leeway to spend money, is to trash the economy in the short term and then have a bounce back in the fifth year of the forecast because then your denominator rises a lot and debt comes down, even if it's at a higher level. It makes absolutely no sense. It's really dumb. And so what we're going to get now is we're going to get an improvement in the short term, so lower debt, but that means in the fifth year growth, nominal growth, is likely to be lower, which means it's harder to hit your fiscal target. And Jeremy Hunt will say, oh, I've got no extra, no extra leeway. This is really, really silly. But what I think it will enable the government to do, which is the Chancellor might be quite happy about, is do not very much on Wednesday week. And then in the autumn, when he gets an extra year, because that's when the forecast rolls forward to have an, a year, another year, uh, he'll have more leeway on his fiscal rule and then he can cut taxes and say that it's been a success ahead of the election, which again, I don't think is necessarily great economic policy, but that is, I think, where we are. So don't be surprised if this happens. Uh, I don't think this will be the most consequential budget. Fireworks in the autumn, perhaps, um, but we've got some big questions about how we manage our public finances at the moment. Great. Thank you very much, Chris. So Chris's summary is 
It might be a bit boring. It will be a bit silly. Wait for the autumn. The, um, don't tune out, don't tune out. We've got some other stuff to talk about. Right, okay, there's lots to chew on there. Let's do a bit of short-term economy. Let's do a bit of medium-term on earth going on, and then let's do what they're going to announce. Because although I think I'm somewhere in between you guys on, like, there's still going to be quite a lot, there could be quite a lot of stuff announced, even if it might be on the worthy end and feel a bit dull. But the actual volume of, there are some actual material decisions they're at least gearing up to try to take. So I think we should try to do justice to um, uh, those. So let's do the short-term economy side first. So there's two areas we didn't touch much on. Um, so on, let's do the fiscal first. So Chris, why don't you take this one, which is on this 10 billion roughly. We're gonna try and keep this like manageable. So 10 billion improvement in receipts. William is asking us um, how much of this is basically us just us like extra fiscal drag basically has turned up than we were expecting versus actually things are actually better substantively. Well, just to keep things very simple, what do we say half and half? Half is that you've got more tax relative than you expected for a given level of nominal GDP of the size of the economy, and half seems to be that maybe because inflation was quite high or and the economy is not performed as badly partly because gas prices have come down since the summer we have a bit of genuine economic improvement as well yeah i think that sounds about right one thing is, so we, we focused in on the summary on national insurance and um uh, self-assessment receipts being higher but it, but most things are better most tax receipts are becoming stronger haven't they? yeah we've also seen it's quite interesting on you know, corporation tax in the, in the cash receipts we've seen kind of two offsetting errors so much lower offshore corporation tax as you expect because gas prices are coming down but actually higher than expected um, onshore corporation tax so yeah quite a lot of strength kind of across the board on the tax side yeah the, um, well, we shall see what they think lasts. The, um, we should say that 10 gone. is not a huge number when whatever taxes are 700. Large. Yeah. Yeah. Large. And that is worth, that's def and particularly when we, when we come on in a second to talk about the longer term side of this, I think a lot of what we, like, the degree to which the forecast slash the substance is in a holding pattern while we work out what shape the actual British economy is in when we get through this high inflation phase. Is that the underlying challenge here? What is a normal growth rate? What on earth is the labour market doing? Where have we got rid of the inflation problem? All of those things we're not going to know the answers to, but you've got to make a forecast now. And so you kind of think, well, I'll just leave it where it is and we'll see where we are when some of some of the kind of mist has cleared. The um, anyway. which isn't that okay? That's not that unreasonable. You know, waiting for the mist to clear. We haven't been through an inflation shock like this for a while. We haven't seen falling participation for a while. Let's wait and see. But you might want to set your destination for where you're Ooh, going back to the when goals. the mist has cleared. <laughs> I mean, it's not, otherwise you're wandering around a little bit aimlessly in the mist. I see what um, you did And I think, um, handed me the metaphor, I'm going to seize it. I you the metaphor. But, you know, kind of, Chris is saying, okay, well, you know, as you say, there's a kind of silly fiscal rule. It's, you know, it's pretty cynical that we are going to be leaving these major issues unsolved because of a silly fiscal rule, basically. And I guess that's what I'm kind of trying to bring out. You know, the fiscal rules are kind of fun to discuss. They're fun to discuss at events like this because we're like, you know, is he going to meet fun. it? You know, and it creates a bit of political drama, but yep. it does obscure without being too kind of trite, the drama in real people's lives, basically. And I think that's, you know, that's what I'm trying to say. Very good. The, um, just, I mean, to, to defend the fiscal rules and the chancellor, I mean, the reason he's waiting till next year isn't really the fiscal rules, is it? It's the election no. timetable. Yeah. Sure. So, like, the, um, so, and March know. next year is probably too late. It will look a little bit too cynical. 
So well, that is a good question. Okay, we'll come back to that at the end. Let's have what people's views are on whether March is too late. Depends when the election is, Chris. If the election's not till the autumn, you know, loads of time to go. The, but we can come back to that. The, um, that's also uncertain, the election timetable. But the, right, okay, let's do something that isn't getting talked about at all, really, in the budget run-in, but is really material. And actually, if you look at what's happening in advanced economies around the world, particularly Anglo-Saxon ones, there's a lot of action on, despite some of this, which is the housing market. The, um, uh, so we've got a question here, which is, is the government going to intervene? But let's broaden it. Uh, I think no, broadening the answer. But let's broaden it out to, is actually that the big action that is going on? So the uh, hands up in the room if you're a homeowner. Right. Oh yes. Um, the, um, okay. The, um, it's not going well, is it, guys? The, um, the, um, so Chris, how much on you know? Because on Wednesday here we've got Swati Dingra, the um, uh, MPC, MPC member from the Bank of England, uh, talking about what she thinks about interest rate, environment, and the cost of living crisis. But the broader, what is monetary policy doing to the housing market, and will that feed through into the real economy? The, um, how much do you think that's a big deal, Chris? Sure. We're not talking about much. It's a big deal for this year because we have a large number of people floating off um, fixed rate mortgages. These are not people necessarily at the bottom of the income distribution. They are in the, probably more in the middle of the income distribution. And that's, that is where the cost of living crisis is almost certainly going to go this year. When you float off from a, around a 2% to around a 5% rate, which is roughly where what's happening at the moment, if you are particularly younger in that in that age group, so your mortgage is a large part of your income already, that will be an incredibly big shock to people. Hand, hands up, mortgages in the room? Who's got a mortgage left? Leave it up if you're remortgaging this year. Anyone? I'm sorry. The um, <laughs> average cost in, is it in, you live in London, sir? I do, I do. But okay. The house in a different country. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We, we ain't offering you financial <laughs> advice on that. Was the house in London? I think the average remortgage in, increase in your mortgage bill is five grand this year. Yeah. Like this is not tough, and it's three grand for the country as a whole. Yeah. And and so you know this is going to is going to really hurt. Now the difficulty for all the people who, through no fault of their own, are in this position, uh, because how would they have known that we were suddenly going to hit and a global interest rate spike in whenever whenever they were thinking of remortgage is they are not a large part of the nation. Yeah. So as far as the, in terms of the macroeconomic effect is going to be quite small. So they're going to hurt, but the nation isn't going to hurt in the same way. And so for the people involved, it's going to feel very unfair and very difficult indeed. If you, thanks Chris, um, it always a picking us up. If, if you draw a map of the country now of the constituencies and you color each constituency by the most common tenure, in that constituency, we're now for the vast majority of constituencies now in outright owners are the most common, right? So that's the, that's why this issue is happening basically because the big change is we just have loads of people, older people, who now own their houses outright without mortgages. They, um, but you, so because you're you're quite um, so there's some concentrated pain on the mortgage front amongst kind of the like squeeze middle aged as they're known. They, um, are the oldies going to stop spending because their house price just went down by ten percent? No, no, I don't think so. Not you think that was totally unchanged behaviour? There'll be a little bit, but I don't think we think it's going to be very large. I think th this is, I mean, you know, this is where the CARA's first judgment about savings rates really matters because that is going to be a very big determinant of how the economy performs and then how much more or less interest rate rises there are. The bank is, is also in a slight holding pattern. I don't want to say. Yeah. But they, they, 
interest, increased interest rates a lot. They now need to see to what extent that has an effect on the economy, bringing it down, also bringing down inflation, and to what extent inflation is persistent. And those two things are, given how much has changed over the past year, pretty uncertain at the moment. Yeah. Can I just ask you? Chris, you were talking about the kind of how the better economic news on um, energy prices hasn't fed through yet into the OBR's fiscal forecasts. Surely it should be feeding through into the bank's forecasts as well. You know, we've had this kind of inflation is high yeah. driven by energy prices. Yeah. We're whacking interest rates up. There doesn't seem to be any sense that maybe we don't need to whack up interest rates quite so much because energy prices aren't going well, up so much. It, I mean, the truth, and that it feeds yeah. through into the debt forecasts as well. I mean, it has fed through into the Bank of England's forecast, really quite significantly into the, into the central forecast. And then what the bank has done is because it's worried about what companies are doing about prices and about whether wages are, even if they're going to rise less than inflation, still rise too much to be not inflationary. Uh, it's put a massive skew on its forecast so that it sort of says, well, you know, there's a big risk that inflation stays a little bit too high. So we are going to, and you know, we... We know what's going to happen to inflation in the next few months because it's all going to be determined by what happened last year to prices. So it's going to come down. Then the April figures, which will come out in mid-May, will show a very big drop, and then we'll have another set of big drops. So if you are the Bank of England, and this is, by the way, Swati, and everyone else on the NPC will say, this doesn't come into our thinking whatsoever. I bet you it does. Uh, if you're thinking about when, how high do you need to get interest rates to be sure you've got inflation under control, you've got the March meeting and the May meeting to make your bet. After that, raising interest rates when inflation's falling like a stone is going to be very, very difficult presentationally. Such a cynic, Chris. Right, okay, let's use that as a, Kate's question for a pivot onto the medium term forecast, okay? So like, what's going to be going on? So as we say, we've got a slightly weird thing, which is, we all expect the forecast to be slightly in a holding pattern, okay? There's quite a lot of changes going on, but there's a lot of mist, whether you like that analogy or not. And people are broadly gonna say, okay, well, you know, we'll leave our judgments broadly where they are with some moving parts going in both directions to justify. The, um, but there is something a bit going on, which just goes to Kate's question, which is, and Cara showed you this in the charts, the Bank of England are basically suicidal, right? About the medium term prospects for the UK economy. There's like, the spread of independent forecasts for like 24, 25, and then there's the Bank of England, right? And the OBR is in with the consensus, and the Bank of England is th saying, not only is participation gonna be coming down really fast, which is that blue line you saw on the chart, um, but the potential productivity growth of the UK economy is also much slower. The, um, so let's, like, is that, let, well, Carl, why don't you like take this on, like, how, how have we ever? I don't think we've ever had a gap this big between the Bank of England and the OBR on the permanent long term. So what? You know, how how suicidal should we be? I think it's it's obviously tricky. I think it's also partly why you ended up with quite a strange um, OBR inflation forecast um, back in November. They ended up actually forecasting deflation, and that was partly to do with this gap between oh. market expectations what the bank was going to do and the OBR's forecast was very different from the bank's forecast was feeding into the, what, um, the bank's analysis. Um, I think I mean, we'll, the, the OBR's kind of main aim is to, to give us a central forecast. I'd be quite surprised if they went for something as, as, as pessimistic as the bank on that basis. Yeah, if, they, if, they do go, if they do go as pessimistic as the bank, unlikely, but you know, below the range of all the external forecasters. How much, so you had about, you've got about 10 billion improvement in the fiscal 
and we can yeah. take a year in the medium term, which is what's giving us this slightly lower level of debt over the period. If they go as negative as the bank, do we lose all of that? Uh, I think it's slightly tricky because it depends what bit of their forecast they're adjusting. So they've still got a far, a far more optimistic productivity forecast in the bank. They are kind of about 1.2%, the bank's about 0.8%. So they have a kind of, I guess, the, the outlier in terms of optimism in that, that bit of their economic forecast. So I guess you'd have a bit of that offsetting. But yeah, I'd like to downgrade it. There's something, there is something very weird about these forecasts as well, though, is that we get into this kind of what my colleagues described as a kind of doom loop, basically, where you have forecasts that growth must be lower, therefore an assumption that you cannot spend any money, therefore a reduction in demand as well as a reduction in potential supply, and you are in a perpetual assumption, loop that, a doom loop, basically. And I think, you know, that's again, we've all seen the kind of change of consensus on austerity, basically, and that sucking demand out of the economy did, you know, reduce the economy's productive potential. And I think that is one of the things we're seeing now. I think we're in real danger of talking ourselves back into that situation by giving up on the potential for the economy to grow, therefore saying we cannot do anything about that growth rate. And that's kind of, when you read the Bank of England's forecast, it does sort of take you into that place. And I think that's something we've seen the dangers yeah, of before and we really need to avoid. Why don't we, on this level of pessimism, Chris, why don't you take this one from Bazia, which is, you, some of you have probably heard this fact used a few times now saying that Britain is going to be poorer than Poland by 2040. I don't know whether they've heard it on the pages of the FT, Chris, but they've definitely heard it on the, whatever the version of pages is of the TV screens of the BBC. The, um, so what do you think about that, Chris, on this, like, say you went for the bank's 0.8 productivity growth, basically very low forecast. Well, if, if we have the Bank of England's future, if that is our future, then that is possible. Um, that is why it mustn't be our future. I mean, that, that, that must not be our future. It, um, we, we do need to sort out growth and we need to sort out all the reasons uh, why the economy is not growing as it used to. We're never going to get, I don't never, we are very unlikely to get back to a annual growth rate of in the two and a half percent just because our demographics are against that, against us. Uh, and that we have to accept that when, when you have an aging population, you have to make adjustments. Poland also has an aging population. So let's not assume that Poland's going to go at 6% as it has over the past X number of years since joining. But well, it's had a lot of the convergence yeah. benefits. Yeah. So let's. Yeah. So I think is it a myth? Well, it's a myth that you'll that we are we are definitively on like tracks so that that we are going to get to that that point. But you know, I think you know one of the things that I uh, I get quite irritated about because it, it again makes me get back to the Brexit debate. We we shouldn't be surprised if other countries do better than us uh, or or grow fast or do things that help their economy. That is what all countries should do. And we shouldn't assume that we have a place in the world that is always going to put us up, and as we like to say, the fifth largest economy in the world. That's a nonsense number because that's not measured correctly. We're about the ninth. But if we took a look at our living standards, we're about the 25th out of 200. So we're, we are a rich, quite large economy, but we're not near the top and we should accept where we are and then we need to improve it. I mean, we're not going to do that, Chris, but the, um, <laughs> thanks for the... Right, let's take a question from the gentleman here in the room and then I'm going to move us on to some policy. Go sure. I, what's depressing about a lot of this discussion is that it ignores what I think everyone understands is the real future for the UK, which is to try and get our act together on science, innovation and technology. And the government has sort of made some steps in the right direction. They've created a department to focus on it 
you know, Rishi apparently thinks it's it's really important. One worries, I think, that they're tinkering around and not going to do things at sufficient scale. And in my opinion, the root problem is we've got three trillion pounds of savings in pensions assets sitting around essentially doing nothing. And all our best science, innovation and technology scale-ups get bought up for a song by foreign companies. But the government's kind of onto this. And it's a great pity that there isn't as much discussion of that, which will drive our medium and long-term future, as there is on ridiculous stuff like, oh, let's keep fuel duty down to zero for increases for another year. Very good. So, the, um, so to be fair to the government for five seconds, the, um, so, on, um, so the level of public investment, particularly in science, is, it doesn't feel like this, because people, but it's up. Let's not go into the like short-term up and down roller coaster of it, which is a bit silly. But the levels are up significantly from their like long-term 1990 zero, basically 20, 2000s low. So we've got a, got a roller coaster, but we've got that we're up to a high level, i.e., at least above two percent of GDP. It's probably not enough, but and a lot of that is being devoted to the the new department you mentioned has basically taken all the money that existed in the old business department because it's all just science budget um, and taken it with it. So they are, and I think, and to, if you went through like, looked for kind of consistency in Rishi Sunak's speeches over the last three years, he's definitely on the science and tech, ideally with a Californian flavour to it, is the answer for the UK's woes. The, um, so I don't know, I mean, Chris, do you think they are, do you think the government agrees with the gentleman? Well, I think the government probably agrees uh, in principle. Uh, I'm not sure I do, if I was being honest. I think we have to make all parts of the economy work well. And that, and if we are going to, that will mean things, e things are often un unfashionable, like finance in the city has to do a little bit better. Uh, and all parts of our economy work well. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I'm like slightly concerned and perturbed about is that we have done over the past 20 years really quite well on things like uh, numbers of people with higher education degrees. And this was always going to make us grow faster as a society and this was the big idea of the late Labour period and early Conservative period and it's just not happened. We're not seeing um, a benefit from that, and I think we don't really understand it. Why? I don't think we even know, and I think we think we're even asking that question that properly. That's a good question. Uh, so there are so, so there are big questions about why our economy is not growing. We know we've got productivity problems in the high end. Our best companies aren't performing as well as they were, and then we've got the age-old problem that we have a very large tail of not so productive companies, which you know don't go out of business or don't improve. So we want them either to do one of the other, one of those two things, preferably the latter. Um, but it's not, but it's, but these things aren't happening. So it's across the economy as a whole. We are just generally not performing very well. Very good. Thanks again. Always perking us up, Chris. Right. Let's move on to some policy. So first is a very straight question for Kate. So the, um, is a 5.5% payoff to public sector workers going to end the strikes? What do you reckon? Uh, I'm not negotiating oh, those deals. Come on. <laughs> so let's put, I mean, this is, so the 5.5 is, is us doing a, what does it take over, say, two years to kind of materially close the gap between public and private sector pay that's opened up since the start of the pandemic? That's broadly what it would be, right? The, um, so we think that next year, let's leave aside this year for a second, the next year, this is about the, um, 
I mean, that does feel like where we're heading, do you think? Look, I think unions have said three things, basically. They need to talk about 22, 23 pay deals. They need to talk about decent pay deals for this year, i.e. 2023, 24. Yeah. And they need those not that money not to be taken out of core public service delivery because that is what is making their lives so difficult is not having the resources to do their jobs so you know they are negotiating those deals i'm not in that room but i think there's a pretty clear set of demands and let's remember unions have been asking for that for months you know they started saying we need to talk about pay back in the summer it's taken what eight months for government to say oh okay we'll have that conversation needless industrial rest you know needless loss of pay for those workers as well as disruption for everybody else to get to the point now where government has actually got in the room and said oh yeah okay we can have that conversation but just I mean, again to be nice to the government for a second it, maybe this is just all inevitable as in there's going to be a big row about pay if you're the treasury they don't want to have the row twice so they don't want to have a row and make a settlement for 22 23 and they don't want to then come back and have another row in 23 24 and so we've all been going on a long song and a dance because we've got to get close to the 23-24 year starting, at which point they're going to do a deal on the 23-24 settlement. Our guess is something like this. They're going to backdate a lump sum for 22-23 so that it's not baselined, which the union, because of the health service, have basically given an indication that that's what they're going to settle for. And then that, at that point, they're going to top up departmental budgets and do you think to cover it was the worth gap. It? Do you think that negotiating no, strategy was worth it? I'm not. Because, I'm just saying that know, that's... For those workers who've taken action, that was a yeah. really, really difficult decision for them. Yeah. You know, they have lost days of pay in a period where they are telling us they cannot afford to pay their energy bills. Talking to a firefighter the other day who has stopped driving to work, she's come out of her pension. You know, I don't think it was worth it. And again, I think that was a cynical judgment to get to somewhere where the unions were saying they could have got to. You know, right across the private sector, companies have said, okay, we can do deals. The public sector has forgotten how to negotiate until now, when finally they've done what the unions were saying for months and months, which is just talk to us about the issues that are actually on the table. So, Cara, what's going to happen? Are we going to get... So we're asserting this is where we're going to end up. We're just going to get there via, as you say, a deeply suboptimal process. But we'll get there eventually when people kind of like get round to wanting to make this all go away. Are they going to top up the department of budgets in the budget or are they going to wait till mm, end of April, May? They'll be into the next financial year. The deals will mainly have been done and then give the cash. What do you reckon? I think it's a very tricky question. <laughs> um, I think what we're unlikely to see is too much kind of too much kind of tinkering with um, departmental overall kind of departmental en- envelopes yeah. as this budget. Um, particularly, we're definitely not going to see a kind of reopening or, or looking at, um, at how much overall departments kind of have in their envelopes. But we might see these kind of one-off top-ups um, when that comes to the budget or after. I think. It's I, bet, I reckon we're coming after, but go on. oh, after definitely. There you go. Okay. You've got. You've got. The, everyone has to come away, you know, with saving their face and saying that they've won. And the government, and the government's got itself into a line where it says it's not going to give any extra money for now to departments. That's the Treasury's position, so they'll have to do that. Then there'll have to be a bit of a crisis in departments, and then they'll top it up. Yeah. Um, it is a really stupid way to make policy no, it is. or to run our public yeah. services. And I think we just have to recognise how stupid that it is. is. This yeah. is okay, all, absolutely right. all true it's and it's still going to happen because life is suboptimal and so is policy making. Right. OK, we haven't touched on other areas that we didn't cover in the um, talking, which is on, I'm going to come to you so in a second, but on levelling up, where I think we might get some stuff next um, 
uh, week. So the question from Anonymous here is, are we going to get a focus on levelling up? The, um, uh, which we can come back to, but I think we probably will. I think we should get these um, trailblazer deals. Sound very exciting with Greater Manchester and the West Midlands announced next week, but we'll see. But I think we almost uh, it's quite hard not to get those given how far they are. The, um, and are we going to get a more equal distribution of investment across the country? No, we're not going to get anything on that. Uh, anyway, I think that's all very clear. The, um, Chris, anything else on levelling up you're expecting? No, we, we've, we've got into this again suboptimal. Uh, game of having pots of money that can be distributed for an announcement effect and rather than a long-term thinking about where you want to uh, allocate public investment. Do remember though on levelling up um, that the London and the South East uh, are not the main beneficiaries. They very, very significantly subsidise the rest of the country. Uh, so we shouldn't forget about London and the South East either. All right, so there's some special pleading there. Chris, gentleman here. Go ahead. Um, Give us yeah. your name, sir. Uh, sorry, Ben Richards from Kingfisher. Um, I uh, Jumping on something Kate mentioned earlier and, and actually going into this policy point that hasn't been covered yet, um, and I know I'm dancing around the kind of rabbit-out-the-hat territory at the moment in this budget, energy efficiency in homes is obviously an area that the UK is talking about a lot. Um, but there is an obviously movement. It feels like a difficult time to have this conversation asking consumers to spend more on their properties. So I suppose the, the kind of two questions, if I, if I may, one more broadly for the panel is, you know, how could this budget respond to the Skidmore review um, mm -hmm. in growth? And then I would be interested in views on green stamp duty as a kind of big indicator uh, to push consumers towards uh, taking action and obviously the... Remind people what green stamp duty is for those that are spending less of their lives in this uh, area? Uh, yeah, lucky them. Um, it, it, it would essentially be one of two things, so either a, a discount on when you, you do something and, and depending on the energy efficiency, or a rebate if you take action on your property within, say, uh, two years of purchasing. This is a route to the wider question of should you subsidise people to make their homes more energy efficient. Kate? Yes. <laughs> All right, are, are we going to? Um, well... There is, I mean, the government has so far failed to do this, but, you know, they have got a very obvious ask, you know, when people talk about the, um, it's weird to call it a windfall, but the lower than expected gas prices, meaning that the energy price guarantee has been less expensive, people have rightly said that is a one-off benefit to the Treasury. You know, it is a one-off cost to do energy efficiency. It is our long-term problem. It is a very, very obvious place to put that cash. And, you know, one would hope that the government could have the kind of creativity and foresight to see the added benefit of doing that now. You know, the case for it has never been made clearer. Um, it's a long-term problem. It could be solved. You know, Rishi Sunak is trying to kind of present himself as a problem solver right now. This would be a nice, knotty problem to have fixed. Um, very good. The, um, to be fair, I think it is actually quite a hard, it's a harder problem. I think the slight danger is we all, obviously we all wish we'd been doing this for like 15 years, right? So that we, we didn't have like the leakiest housing stock in the world because nobody bombed it during the war as much as some other countries. So the housing stock is old, the loads of brick walls. We went through homeowners before. How many of you have got Victorian? Houses, they're a complete disaster, people. I know you like the period features, but one of the period features is awful walls. They're, they're, and everyone's like, oh, I lagged my loft. And that's like, I mean, that's interesting. Your walls are leaking like all the time and it costs huge amounts of money 
to sort that problem out. So I do think, to be fair to the government, it, there's the easy stuff, the loft, sort your windows out. But there is actually just like hard stuff too that costs a lot of money. The, um, and we're probably not going to subsidise all of you to sort out your walls. You're going to have to cough up at some point. Right, let's move on to another area policy we haven't covered. Housing benefit. The, um, so, Cara, there's a question here for you, which is um, basically how big a problem is it that the housing benefit level is basically being frozen now since 2019 rent levels? Yep, so it was last operated in 2020 in the pandemic. Um, so local housing allowance which sets the amount of kind of private rent that's covered people on housing benefit or the housing element of universal credit um, is in line with rents for the 12 months up to September 2019. Uh, we've seen obviously really significant rises in rents over the past year so to about 10% I think some areas um, have seen about 15% rises in rents since that point. Um, so there's been a lot of calls, and including ourselves, uh, for the government to rebase those local housing allowances to, to current rents. Um, that cost about £1 billion when they did that in um, March 2020, so I think something around that ballpark. Um, but yeah, we've seen kind of social renters will see their rents rise at lower than inflation rates from, from April. Um, obviously, mortgages are feeling, feeling the pinch as well, but um, private renters, particularly those on, on housing benefit, are, um, also kind of seeing those rents rise um, and, uh, and their, their benefits not keeping pace. Go on, Kate. I just think it's worth saying, so this kind of set of policies around local housing allowance came in in the Welfare Reform Act, mm. which was in 2012, I think. At that point, there were multiple analyses saying this will lead to an increase in homelessness. Lo and behold, it has led to an increase in homelessness. This was a consciously taken they knew about the impacts policy decision, which is visible on the streets of London now. And obviously it's a priority area for fixing, but it's not a surprise that cutting the level of housing benefit in the private rented sector has led to less people being unable to afford their homes. And not just in London, actually, if you look at the areas where the, um, not at all just in London, if you look at the areas where the rent rises have been largest since 2019, what was top of the list? Cheshire? Cheshire, yeah. Cheshire's top of the um, uh, list over this. And we're talking about big, changes in rents over that period they have not least because inflation is really high they um right let's do let's go big picture for a second and a poll for all of you remember the hashtag is budget preview if you want to vote in the poll so you're going to get en the energy price guarantee increase being delayed right that's there's 100 going to happen it's been obvious that was the case for two months but we've been kind of as kate's been telling us off for but <laughs> going through this silly dance to get to where we were going to get to anyway that's what we're doing on fuel duty you're going to get the RPI up rating scrapped. I think they might still go ahead with getting rid of the temporary cut as well. So they'll go for a halfway house, but we'll find out. The, um, but those are the easy ones, right? Then we get to the hard stuff. So what are they going to do with any of this hard stuff? So let's go for what's your most likely. So retirement ages, you'll have seen the briefing about the state retirement age, but the actual some of the more controversial stuff is actually around private pensions. Are they going to raise the normal retirement age as the point at which you can start to access your private pensions. They're um, currently set to rise to 57 by the top back end of this decade, but it's going to stay 10 years below the state pension. So it's going to do a lot more for determining retirement ages for those who are better off. Uh, is the government going to go ahead with the big disability benefit reforms that they have briefed? This is like scrapping the work capability assessment, possibly. Doesn't mean you scrap, you have to do the things the work capability assessment is for in other ways, but are they going to go ahead with that? Will they move to big corporate tax reform, let's call big as full expensing or significant increases, which would help the big businesses, right? Full expensing, which the CBI and uh, lots of other people are lobbying for, is about 
it mainly benefits large businesses who aren't covered by other forms of investment allowances um, uh, currently. The, um, let's forget versus the super deduction versus the longer term picture. The, um, are they going to do all of these, in which case it's a massive budget? I think any of these would count as very big deals. They do all of these, it's a huge budget. Or are they going to have sat down last week around the table and thought, we can just have a quiet budget, you know? We've done this Northern Ireland thing. Why do we want to have all of these would cause rows with some people? Any disability benefit reform like this will have big winners and big losers. Um, so will corporate tax reform. Raising the normal minimum pension age will upset some people because they'll be thinking, I want my big tax free lump sum to let me retire at 60. They, um, so let's give each of the panel a chance to give us which one they think is most likely or their flavour on the budget, and then we'll see what everyone else in the audience thinks. Chris, come on, which one's happening? Uh, of those, I think most likely will be some form of disability benefits reform, not necessarily very large, though. Yeah, so you're thinking more like the, what the Labour Party's been talking about in terms of not forcing people into an assessment straight after entering work. Yeah, and, but I, I think there'll be, you know, carrot and stick in, involved because they are, the Chancellor is worried about the rise of number of people on disability benefits, um, which uh, he would, I would, I would characterise him as thinking is not entirely just people being sicker. Yeah, and if you look at the um, report we've got out today, you can see a chart showing you how fast the PIP claims are picked up. It's, not, it's actually pre-pandemic, but since 2019, claims to PIP, personal independence payment, that's the, not, that's the kind of, uh, outside of the benefit system, people normally talk about the income support part of the benefit system. But you can see the claims going through the roof, largely driven by mental ill health and more older people claiming on things. So there's a lot going on in that space. By, and by just on, so everyone was clear on by sticks, we basically mean conditionality. Yeah, yeah. So just just I think on the grounds that the the I mean the the, the charitable way of putting it is that people actually are healthier in work than out of work quite often and and better off and have better lives and maybe they need a push that would be uh, that's not necessarily how lots of people would see it but that's how the government will see it Kate which one's going to happen um, well I worry that that will be what they have done they've over the year announced large amounts of conditionality none of which has been aimed at the people who have actually left the labor market or addressing the problems that those people face um, i think governments often reach for benefit conditionality when they don't have anything else to say um, extremely limited evidence that it will make any difference to the group in so question does that mean you are expecting two to happen i think it might happen because i think they see it as easy and cheap i think it's deeply undesirable um, and therefore I'm going to hope that they do none of these because I don't think any of these are the right answers to the problems I think we've all been discussing. I think if they go ahead with some of the disability benefit reforms they're talking about, it, my best bet is it ends up costing more money in the longer term. That's what all the previous disability benefit reforms have so done. That's one of the strong reasons why I think that's what <laughs> will end up happening but you know we'll see, find out whether the Treasury signed any off uh, in the um, first place. Right come on Cara, which of these? Don't be all of them. I might go for corporate tax reform in that I think full expensing allows them to do something in corporate tax reform that is significantly cheaper than cutting the headline rate. So they might see that as a kind of, if they really want to do something in corporate tax reform, they've got something that's a marginally easier option for them fiscally. Yeah, I think it's basically impossible for us to get through the budget without something on corporate tax. They, um, it's pretty hard. I think they could get away with a review. A review. The, um, okay, we shall uh, see. Right, let's I see what you autumn is when they're going to do the action there. Let's see what you all thought. Right, retirement ages, that's interesting. The, um, uh, yeah, I mean, they've definitely been looking at all those options, and that is, and this is obviously the context of 
loads of people retired in the pandemic. We don't want any more of you doing that uh, ever again. The, um, to which my main argument to them is always the best way to stop that is to avoid another pandemic because the effect of having two years stuck in your house was very strong in stopping you going back out to work if you were kind of already 60 and that probably isn't going to happen uh, again. Right, let's, um, uh, let's start to wrap up. Let's just do inactivity. So we've talked there a bit about this state pension age and about the... Um, and about um, private pension changes as ways to boost the activity rates of the population as a whole. Is there anything else people are expecting? Kate, what do you want to see on childcare? I think they'll duck childcare, but um, you know, it's a really obvious area and it's been obvious for, obviously we have had more investment in childcare. Loads. We have seen Over women's participation. In, so we've had more investment in childcare and we've seen women's participation increase. However, as everybody knows, childcare is still expensive and unaffordable to many people. Um, I don't see that they're about to do the kind of big investment that would actually be transformative or worthwhile in this area. I think just the other thing we want we should be looking at in inactivity is what makes people stay in work as well as what makes mm -hmm. them leave it. So, yes. you know, the government has started to talk about flexible work, but it ditched its employment bill where it was meant to be bringing in a whole raft of changes talking about improving, you know, we thought they were insufficient, but there were some changes talking about improving the quality of work. And I think, you know, what happened during the pandemic wasn't just that people stayed at home, but they did start to think, is this worth it? You know, my job is stressful, it's insecure, it's badly paid. Is it actually worth it? And I think yeah. making work more worth it is part of making, you know, encouraging people to be able to stay and work, but also making them want to. Yeah, and we definitely see that in our focus groups with lower earning older workers. They're very clear that the nature of the work is a very large determinant. Often actually not on the working at all versus not working, often on the how many hours, how many days a week am I going out to work. That's clearly, which makes a big difference to how well off people are in their 60s before they access their state pension if they're on a, if they're on a low income. Chris, what are you expecting? On, ex on inactivity, um, I think Kate's mentioned most things I agree with her on that. I think... One of the things that's obviously difficult in inactivity, this is just unfortunately just the way life is, is that carrots, uh, childcare or anything like that, cost a lot of money. There's a lot of dead weight. You'll be giving a lot of money to people who are in work anyway. Uh, and don't assume that all the movements in hours are going to be from zero into work. Some of the movements will be from full-time into part-time, particularly if you make it a sort of a limited amount of... Uh, support available and that's really expensive for government because uh, we've got a progressive tax system so if someone moves from um, full-time to part-time in response to something that costs you that costs you double uh, and it's much cost you much more than someone you managed to persuade to move from out of work into part-time so some of these things have some really rather nasty for government that is incentive effects which means they do cost a lot and I get probably across my desk at the moment we get two or three reports a week saying how paying for childcare is free it just isn't I mean that is just unfortunately the case doesn't mean it isn't the right thing to do because we know it does work in the long term but it is just a choice of how you allocate money yeah and that is really important like a lot of the chat about oh if everybody got more free hours of childcare for their two-year-olds they would massively see rises in participation. The evidence definitely doesn't support that. You're mainly, you're mainly doing like life cycle redistribution to people in a kind of high cost part of their lives. Good thing to do for that reason. 
the evidence doesn't strongly suggest that it would lead to big rises in participation. Other things are much more important there. But back when we had an agenda about investing in children, that's and a good about, reason to do it. There are lots of other know, reasons. Their to do development, it. about their future participation, about their future life prospects. All good. We thought that that might be a good idea. And I think, again, to go back to my point about the kind of lack of ambition, no one talks about children's prospects anymore when they consider these decisions. And I think if we started putting that back into the conversation, again, these choices would look a bit different. Very good. Okay, well, let's wrap up there on the need for some longer term uh, choices. And last word then for the panel before we, everyone goes, which is. Is it going to be a boring budget or is it going to be a, a actually surprise on the like energetic side, either on the forecast or on the uh, action side? Cara? I'm going to say surprise based on the last few years. <laughs> true. The last few years have had too much surprise. We'd like less surprise than the last few years. Kate? I'm going to be optimistic and say, you know, maybe they will want to set out some longer term plans because, you know, it's good to finish on an optimistic note. Chris. There's no boring budget. All budgets are really interesting. <laughs> That's a non-credible claim. But we'll, uh, who needs truth in their forecast when they have it right? Well, look, there wasn't a boring panel anyway. So can everyone thank the panel for their thoughts today? Thank you for all your questions. And we'll see you at, I think, 9am on Thursday after the budget to do the post-budget uh, analysis with the head of the OBR and the chair of the Treasury Select Committee. And we can find out whether it was boring or not. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.